Uh, Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for today, this opportunity to come together as community, um, to study your word, to seek your face, and to just share life together. Jesus, as we um, think and and discuss and pray about your kingdom, um, Lord, would you pour out your spirit in this place and on these people, God, bind us close together as you bind us closer to you. And Jesus, teach us what it means to be part of your kingdom and your work here in this world. In your name, amen. All right, so we've been going through our Jesus series, and today we're asking the question, all right, who's in charge here? So have you ever wondered, have you gone to some place, sat somewhere, you've seen things are a little bit off, and as a good, you know, forceful person of privilege in America, you're going to go fix that, right? So if you're at a restaurant, things aren't quite right, they haven't taken care of you, you're going to like, all right, who's in charge here? I need to speak to who's in charge. Have you ever asked to speak to who's in charge? Yes, occasionally, someone here. Yes, good. Okay, I think sometimes when we walk around this world that we all live in, occasionally I have that question. All right, wait, (laughs) who's in charge here? Somebody needs to be doing something because this isn't okay and it needs to be set right. And when Jesus comes 2,000 years ago into first century Israel and he's hanging out there in that community, people there are asking that question. Who's in charge here? And Jesus is going to start to answer that with some pretty interesting parables, some pretty interesting, fascinating actions that begin to declare that God indeed is king, that he is ruling and reigning, and that we fully experience that in the person of Jesus. And this starts to revolutionize Jesus' world and still changes our world here today. So let's look a little bit about what it means to be um, asking that question in Jesus' day. This guy is Caesar, and Caesar was pretty sure he was in charge. Yep. So if you were to ask the question, who's in charge here, you might see a building like this, and you go, okay, that means Caesar's in charge. You know, if you're looking at the Colosseum in Rome, and you're looking at a place where ultimately, you know, Christians and anyone really who would go against Caesar or against Rome would be put to death in terrible ways, and I know you've watched all the Hollywood films about all of that. Wasn't there like a gladiator? Is that like a thing? Yeah? Was that, was that Brad Pitt? Who was in that? Russell Crowe, that white guy who people like. That's all I got there. So, so yeah, so one of those movies where there's lots of CGI, and then I can't pay attention after that point. Sorry if you like CGI, and I think that's great. I just can't pay attention. Um, so at those moments, Caesar, Rome, is saying, we're in charge. We're in charge. You're asking the question, who's in charge here? We're in charge. You want to do that? No, you can't. Now you go to death. We're in charge here. But Jesus shows up, and he starts to say, no, the guy who put his name here is in charge. God himself is king. God is in charge. He put his name on Zion in Israel, in Jerusalem, and he is in charge. And that must be pretty difficult to believe when this guy is still throwing people to the lions. How is it that God is in charge even when Caesar still is here? And so Jesus starts to show up on the scene and start to wrestle with that question. So we're going to ask it too. Who's in charge here? Now, when Jesus talks about this, he uses the phrase kingdom or kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Now, the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is the exact same meaning. And in your Hebrew scriptures, in your Old Testament, it'll even sometimes a few times say kingdom of yod heh vav the name, the Lord, kingdom of the Lord. 
that phrase is all the same meaning. And if you've heard a message by a pastor that said something along the lines of like, well, when Jesus says kingdom of heaven, he means this. But when he says kingdom of God, he means this. That's not true. Just set that aside. Sorry. Um, The reason why there's two different phrases is because people were careful about saying God's name in vain. Remember, that's like, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's one of those top ten commandment things. They took that seriously. And so they were careful to use other words to describe God. So they would say kingdom of heaven. Malhut shemaim in Hebrew. Shemaim just means the heavens or the skies, the heavenlies above. It's where God um, has his rule and his reign. And that phrase is used 92 times, either kingdom, kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, 92 times in Matthew, 20 times in Mark, and 46 times in Luke. And yet, for as many times as Jesus talks about the kingdom, the kingdom of God ruling and reigning in his midst, when he says things like, if this person is healed, then the kingdom of God is here. If this demon has been cast out, then the kingdom of God is here. Or, you know what? What's the kingdom of heaven like? It's like a treasure in a field. And you find it, and you see it, and you go and you sell everything you own, and you go and buy that field. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl. That you find. And so as Jesus talks about all of that, that seems to be one of his primary emphasis in his teaching. And yet most of us, at least me growing up in the church, I hardly ever heard a message about the kingdom of God. But it's Jesus' favorite sermon. He preaches it over and over and over and over again. So we're going to hang out with that and try to learn a little bit of what he means in this. And let me just say, I'm just scratching the surface. There's so much to talk about, and for those of you who've been at Spark for a while and you know me, I kind of, you know, occasionally have 152 slides because I get really excited, and I want to tell you everything I've ever learned about the kingdom of God. I won't do that tonight. I'm I'm becoming more disciplined. I've picked the things that I just feel like God's asking me to share today, but there's more. So, yeah, we'll study. We'll hang out. Sermon discussion group this week. Buy me coffee. I can talk a lot. All right. So when we think of the word kingdom, what do we often think of? I've given you a clue. A castle, right? Yeah? Like, if I say you're a princess, right? Who do you, I mean, you're already thinking of all the people in England whose names escape me. All the famous, the woman who's pregnant right now. Kate, right? And what's her husband's name? William. Okay, so seriously, I'm sorry. Ask me who was married to a king in, uh, you know, the ancient Israelite period. I could totally get you that. But, but modern day, I'm not as great at Okay, so we've got all of that stuff. Buckingham Palace, beautiful people. That's a kingdom, right? A place where there's a king, there's a queen, and there's rule and reign. Or maybe some of you think of this kingdom. And I know Miss Tina, this is her favorite kingdom on earth, right? This and the kingdom that rules and reigns in Nordstrom's. So magic kingdom... Yes, she's very excited. Magic Kingdom rules and reigns. (laughs) And a lot of times we'll think of this. We'll think of Disney films when we think of kingdom. We think there's a king in a palace. He's sort of far away. Um, Maybe there's a girl who's lost a slipper, but someday she'll get in. And we talk about that as kingdom. Some people build virtual kingdoms. And apparently this is a thing you can do. So there you go. And then sometimes we hear there was a movie that came out called Kingdom of Heaven. I got so, so sad when I saw this image. I thought, why would you use that image for the kingdom of heaven? So these phrases get turned around and twisted around quite a bit in our community. And then a lot of times when we use kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, we think this, don't we? Or this, yeah? When I was growing up, every time I heard the phrase kingdom of heaven 
or kingdom of God. And when I read Jesus saying those phrases in the Gospels, I first thought of a place where you get past St. Peter at the pearly gate, and then there's harps and naked babies with wings flying by and, um, you know, hanging out in a cloud and just being, like, apparently floaty and happy. So, and then Jesus would tell a story, like the kingdom of heaven is like a banquet. And I would think, okay, so when I get to heaven, there will also be food. That's how I thought about the kingdom of heaven. Anybody else? Am I preaching? Yeah? Is that how you, yeah? So the kingdom of heaven oftentimes is a place where we will go someday, right? It's a heavenly amusement park in the sky. And we will get a ticket, pray this prayer, say these words, Jesus died for you on the cross for your sins. And now because you prayed this prayer and said these words, by the way, we've only been doing that in that way since Campus Crusade for Christ, so, which is great. It's a great tool. But we've gotten a little bit hung up on that. And then somehow we'll get a ticket and then we get to enter in to a kingdom that will happen someday. Someday when we die and we get hoovered up to the sky and it's all, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, and maybe there's some truth in some of that. But where did this kingdom of God's concept come from? When Jesus says kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, everyone around him knows what he's talking about. They're not thinking only that that's a place someday that they'll go. They have a real resonance for this in their community and their culture and their time. In fact, common Jewish opinion then and now is that the kingship of God is both present and future. There's a real understanding and knowledge in the Hebrew scriptures and in Jesus' community of his day that God is presently king. Not someday will he become king, but presently king. And also that God will someday have complete and total rule and reign, just like he has rule and reign now, but there will also be a kingdom of heaven in the future. Cool? Good? So I think we're all, as Christians, most of us in the room, we're pretty familiar with that heavenly amusement park in the sky. And so what we're going to do right now is we're going to hang out with the heavenly amusement park here on earth that Jesus kind of invites us to come to, okay? Now, if you want to look, just because I couldn't tell you everything and I wanted to, um, if you wanted to look about how the Hebrew scriptures have developed that concept of God as king, you can start in Exodus and then hang out in Leviticus and then go to 1 Samuel and then read the Psalms, okay? Um, and Isaiah and other places. Um, just briefly, in the beginning of Exodus, what's going on there? Where are the Israelites? Where are they stuck? Egypt, right? Yeah? And they're stuck in slavery in Egypt, and they are serving who? Pharaoh. Good. And the word there that, it's so fun, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And the word there in worship means, in Hebrew, also to serve or to work. And so what we have at the very beginning of Exodus is this evil king, Pharaoh, who is forced labor, making everybody serve him, worship him in what they do and how they live. They're building his kingdom, building his reign and rule. And instead, God steps into history and says, no, my people will worship me. 
I will be their king, I will be their God, and I'm going to pull them out and make them a holy priesthood, a holy nation. And so in Exodus 15, as Israel starts to push through the Red Sea, they start to sing that beautiful song, and they say this, the Lord is reigning forever and ever. And in Hebrew and in the Greek, it can be read as the Lord will reign or the Lord is presently reigning. It's kind of a both and. And we'll just have to get really comfortable and sit and soak in that mystery. That the Lord is reigning and he will reign, both being true at once. Now that concept continues into the book of Exodus. And then in Leviticus 19, we have one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Because Leviticus 19 says, sort of like, if you're going to be, back in Exodus 19, a holy priesthood, a royal nation, and if I'm going to be your king, then you can't act shabby. You have to act differently than the nations around you. And you need to love your neighbor. You need to love God. You need to care for the blind. You need to not put a stumbling block in front of them. You need to care about the poor. You need to care for the deaf, care for the widow, care for the orphan. And do these lovely things that declare that God, I, God, am in your midst and I am living amongst you. And we are building together a kingdom. One of my favorite phrases, if you build the kingdom, people will look for the king. And wouldn't that be true in the ancient world? If the ancient Israelites had truly lived in the center of the world, which Jerusalem certainly is, the whole world's passing through, and had lived in such a way, if you were walking through and you came upon in the midst of the ancient world where there's child sacrifice and people being discounted because of disabilities and hurts, I don't know if you saw just this... um, Last week, I do some work in Israel with um, children from Palestine and Iraq who, have, um, who are born with congenital heart diseases. And then we bring them to Israel, and ch- Christians help make this happen. And then Jewish doctors provide open-heart surgeries very inexpensively for these kids. And in the news this week, there was a story about how there was this child who, because of this infection that he was born with, When he was just a few months old, he was brought to Israel, but it was quite late, and and the infection had moved into his hands and his feet, and they ended up having to amputate his hands and his feet. Now, because of the different concept of how they deal with disabilities in Gaza and in his family structure, he was abandoned by his family in the hospital in Israel. They wouldn't bring him back to their community. It's too shameful. It's too embarrassing. He has no hands. He has no feet. He can't operate in this world. And so his grandfather from Gaza has come and has lived with him in the hospital in Israel for the last three years. And because he's Gazan, he can't live in Israel. There's all these, you know, difficulties and rules and things like that. And so the whole hospital sort of adopted this family, this Gazan grandfather and his little boy whom he carries around who doesn't have hands and feet. Now, that's a bit of the kingdom of God breaking through, isn't it? But if you were walking into a different community and you saw the disabled being pushed aside, you saw people being trampled down, you'd be like, where is God? Who's in charge here? But when you walk down the halls of that hospital presently and you see that grandfather lovingly caring for this little boy and you see Christians raising money and Jewish doctors coming in and sacrificing and you see everybody reaching in to bring life to this little boy, you're like, I think I know who's in charge here. You see, if you build the kingdom, people will look for the king. 
So we have this beautiful setup that God says, I want to be your king. I want to rule and reign in your community. I want people to walk into your area, into the area of Israel, to walk amongst you and go, whoa, somebody's in charge here. Because what is happening here is not normal. And yet by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see that Israel has gone to Samuel and said, Give us a king like the other nations have. And God says to Samuel, because Samuel's very upset, don't worry, they're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me as king. Go ahead, give them what they asked for. And the king Saul, that's the first king they get, and his name means you asked for it. Shaul. So that's how that concept of king gets set up. And yet there's also this moment of rejection of God as king in terms of wanting an earthly king. Isn't it sometimes difficult to believe in that which we cannot see? Remember, God has no form. We only, when we stood at the foot of Mount Sinai, we only heard a voice. We saw no form, the Bible says. And so sometimes we just get a little bit freaked out about that, right? Wouldn't you like to see, don't all of us, wouldn't be like, Yes, Jesus, right now, thank you. I'd like to see that. But instead, faith comes by hearing. And the Israelites are like, we want to see something. We want to touch it. We want to see it. And they get what they ask for. So the prophets understood from very early on that there was a difference between God's kingship and ruling over Israel, God's rule and reign, they called it the yoke of the kingdom, the yoke of that kingdom ruling and reigning over Israel and their people are taking that yoke on themselves every day when they wake up and they say, the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They take the yoke of God's kingdom upon ourselves. I will love God. I will love my neighbor. I'll do that. Now they knew that there were people and faithful who did that, but they also knew that there would be earthly kings who, in the name of God, would not be building his kingdom. And you just have to read First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles to th- see things go south. And you just have to read the prophets to hear how they're saying, God is king, that guy's not. That guy's got to go, that guy's got to go. In fact, our entire nation is going to have to go into exile because we're not letting God be king. So let's not get confused. God being king in our world doesn't mean that we have an earthly representative who isn't God telling us what to do and pretending that that's on God's behalf. God being king is God being king. Got it? So sometimes I think because of our religious background in the U.S., We work very hard to start us want to see this Judeo-Christian nation continue. There are values there that are beautiful and shouldn't remain. But be careful if you're going to ask a human to do what only God himself should do. God is our ruler. God is our king. And we don't need anyone else but him. Okay, have fun with the Psalms. They all talk about how God's in charge. Particularly Psalm 2. So fun. Today I am your father. Today you have become my son. All these other kingdoms are going away. I'm in charge. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so where is the kingdom? If all of this is true, where is the kingdom? Guess what? It's right here. How is that true? Let's look. Imagine the world without the gospel Jesus. That is to imagine a very bleak place. So yes, The kingdom is not fully here yet, but can you imagine right now a world that doesn't have the gospel of Jesus in it? That is to imagine a very bleak and dark place. 
I can prove to you that the kingdom of heaven is here right now because in that moment where we just start to barely imagine what the world might look like without an ethic of love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy, turn the other cheek, make sure you care for the blind and the poor, little ones, come to me, prostitutes, tax collectors, the, poor, the meek, everyone being part of God's kingdom, that is a Jesus teaching that doesn't exist without him. That value, in fact, there's a great book out by a guy, shoot, Humilitas. What's his last, what's the author's name? John Dixon. He's written a book called Humilitas, and he chronicles that humility as a value was not in the ancient world until Jesus suffered under death on the cross. Sure, right? You don't see other kings running around going, look at me, I'm so humble, unless they're not really, right? I mean, everybody else, you're king if you're strong, if you're mighty. But this value of humility comes because of Jesus and the cross. What would the world look like without Jesus and his gospel? It would be a bleak, dark place. So the kingdom of heaven is here. And in that case, then what does it look like? Well, a few years ago, I did a little uh, experiment with my kids in sixth grade, 56, fifth and sixth grade. I did this with Miss Sarah Grace and others, and so it was super fun. And I let the kids, I divided them up, boys and girls, and I let them decide to build their own kingdoms. I said, you guys can make any rules you want. You can do anything you want. Now, they're thrilled, right? Because the pastor just said, build your kingdom, and we all have to live in it. You build your kingdom, and we all have to live in it. Okay, sweet. The rules that they came up with we're like, everything has to be Star Wars, original Star Wars, not the later editions. Everything, no girls allowed. And then the girls were like, the boys have to, you know, whatever. They, they have to tell us that we're awesome. And, you know, they were going to have all these. So, so they had these kingdoms. Now, at the end, they got to present their kingdoms and their rule to each, each other. And I asked them, do you want to live in the kingdom you've created? Unanimously, the entire class, No. They knew that what they had created was not truly good. That given our, our own, you know, up, left up to our own process and our own choices, we will choose things that don't make sense. We'll choose things that serve ourselves. But when we started saying, okay, so if we start to look at what God's kingdom looks like, is that a place where you'd like to live? And they all, yes, that's a place where we would like to live. And before you get why they're in Sunday school and you paid them to say that, we really didn't. We really didn't. Kids can tell that there's something not quite right with the way in which we do things and that there should be someone in charge. The kings of this earth exercise power by lording it over their subjects, but Jesus' followers will choose the way of the servant. The kingdom is upside down. It's flipped instantly. God's kingdom doesn't make sense when we look at the rest of the kingdoms of this world. It flips everything. As Caesar is up there saying, I am God, and as his sons then declare, I am the son of God, and they put this on their coins, and they pass them out, and Jesus even has to see one and say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. In the midst of all that, that declaration of divinity, God himself, and this is upside down, doesn't declare divinity, but declares humanity. You have all these humans who are going, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God. And you've got God the Father going, I'm with you. I love you. I'll wrap myself up in flesh. I'll dwell amongst you. My kingdom's upside down. 
I'll come submit unto death on a cross for you. I'll humble myself and show you what that means. I'll wash your feet and show you what it means to serve. And the kingdom starts to flip. And it starts to change everything. The way Jesus lives, the way he teaches, what he demonstrates in his world, how he acts, how he starts to declare, peace, be still, waves. Who is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. And the psalmists all declare, God is the one who's in control of the wind and the waves. And Jesus is like, exactly. I am God with you, fully human, fully God, all at the same time. Hang out in the mystery. And God's upside-down kingdom includes the poor and the meek and the mournful and the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers and the widows and the little ones and the fishermen and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Are you kidding me? And the blind and the lame and those who serve and those who love and those who turn the other cheek and who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the great and the small, the last now first, and the sinners along with the righteous. That's the kingdom of God. And when Jesus is here, when he speaks, when he starts to serve, when he starts to deliver people from sickness, from loneliness, from illness, from sin, he starts to say, now, now we're cooking. Now God is on the throne. Now, right here in this midst, rule and reign of God, kingdom of God here, at hand, right here, not to come right here, right now. When you serve, when you love the poor, when you love your enemy, when you turn the other cheek at work, when you reach out to the lonely person at school, when you find a way to make sure that everyone in your community is loved regardless of their past, welcomed in regardless of sin, when you look at yourself in the mirror and you treat yourself with that same grace that Jesus treats with you, then the kingdom of God is here. He's here. He's ruling. He's reigning in our life. And it's better than any other kingdom that you could ever, ever imagine. This should make you want to dance. Like at least in your seat a little, yeah? This is a kingdom where God's unconditional love becomes visible for the world to see. All of a sudden, the things that we've been talking about, this Jesus we've encountered, this Jesus who's reached into our very souls, touched us and said, I love you, I'm fond of you, I adore you, I rescue you, I grab hold of you, and I will not let you go. I don't care how dirty you are, how sinful you are, how far away you are, I will pull you in and I will rescue you. The God that we've experienced here, we now get to experience here. And we get to put on display for the entire world the unconditional love of God in our community. That is the kingdom of God. You want to know where it is? It's here. We get to bring it. We get to be partners with God in bringing his rule and reign here on earth. That's why he spends so much time giving us a lot of instructions. Because he expects those of us, the citizens of his kingdom, to live according to the rules and reign of the kingdom and to build it so that people will start to stop and go, wait a minute, where's the king? He's right here. And his name is Jesus. If the kingdom of God is not just a future event, 
but also a present reality, how then do we become kingdom bringers? I mean, if I've convinced you that you can experience the kingdom of God right here, right now, have I convinced you? I'll nod your heads. Good job. Free coffee for everybody. If that's the truth, then now, how do we do that? Well, if you open up to Luke chapter 14, and we'll just look at a couple verses here because, you know, like I said, I couldn't pick every parable Jesus tells about the kingdom. Luke chapter 14 and verse 12, Jesus says this to the host. He's at a dinner. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, when I was growing up and I read that banquet parable, and I don't know why, but this was one of the parables of Jesus that's kind of stuck with me. I I like food. That could probably be it. And so when I like these feasts and parties, I would picture that someday when I get into that heavenly amusement park in the sky, because I've prayed the prayer and I'm good, when all that happens, there will be a banquet where the poor and the lame and the blind will be invited. And that'll be great. But imagine, just for a minute, go back with me 2,000 years, a little less, and imagine that you're in Galilee, and you're hanging out, and all of a sudden you hear this ruckus, and people start to whisper, and they start to get a little bit excited, and they're like, this, this guy, Jesus, he's this rabbi, this carpenter, this, he works with stone, too. I mean, he's this workman, he's coming into town, and he's going to teach. Wait, are you saying Jesus, the guy that's healed the dead, you know, made the blind see? That guy's coming? Let's go listen. And as we started to listen in, we started to hear him say, you know what, when you throw a banquet, you should not invite the rich. You shouldn't invite your brothers and only friends, but you should go out and you should find the crippled and the poor and the lame. That's what the banquet in heaven is going to look like. That's what the banquet, the resurrection is going to look like. And as you heard that, you thought, okay, I'm going to go do that. And you started to do it that next day. You went out. You took your savings, you bought some meat, you're only going to have that once a year, and you had a banquet, and you invited the guy who's blind and whose eyes leak mucus in such a way that it smells, and you invite him in. And you invite the woman with the issue of blood, and you invite the person who's lame and has been on that mat for, for years, and his friends bring him in, and you invite them in, and you sit them down at the banquet. Ah, oh, the kingdom of heaven is here. What would it be like if we read Jesus' words and we actually did them? And we didn't just wait for a time when he'll do them for us. And I just think that the first followers of Jesus, those first hearers of his teachings, probably started not just to go, oh, that will be nice someday, and yes, it will, but it will also be nice right now. And I don't want to only wait for someday. I also want to see it happen right now. So I'm going to do that right now. What would it be like? Well, I think if we started actually listening to what Jesus says, and we start doing it, we might actually start building the kingdom. So if you want to do this, if you want to be a kingdom bringer in partnership with God, the first thing you need to do is accept Jesus' redemptive power. The great news about being a kingdom bringer is that you do this not in your own strength. That this theology of Jesus, this, this whole concept of God being rule and reign, and that being evidenced visibly in our world through our behavior, that's only possible if you really believe that Christ is with you through the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this on our own. We'll end up building a kingdom like my kids did in 56, yeah? 
So first, accept Jesus' redemptive power in your life. Second, live according to his teachings. This doesn't happen by accident. We don't get to just walk around and say, I believe in Jesus, but then I can act any old way that I want. We start to live like his disciples. We're his disciples in a hurting and needy world. We find out how to apply his teachings, and we pull those teachings in in a way that we minister to others. So if we build the kingdom, people may just start looking for the king. Amen? Sound good? What I want to do now is Jesus actually teaches this beautiful prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. Maybe it also should be called the Disciples' Prayer. And he teaches his disciples how to pray. And in this prayer, he starts to talk about the kingdom. And he talks about how God's kingdom will rule and reign here on earth as it is in heaven. And so I thought what would be nice in conclusion and sort of a dedication of our hope that in partnership with Jesus— through the power of the Holy Spirit, and in community with one another, we might see more of his kingdom here on earth. Let's pray this prayer and pray that his yoke, his teachings of what the kingdom of heaven looks like, would would rest on our shoulders and start to be poured out in our own life and in the lives of the people around us. So let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.